to the Minute Women podcast. My name is Grace. And I'm Linnea. And before we get started, I just want to remind everyone to go rate and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And make sure to go follow us on all of our social media platforms. We'll give you the handles at the end of the episode. So Grace, what am I learning about today? Well, today's episode is a little themed. It's a a little thematic because I'm going to try and tie it into a milestone that we had this week. Which, you know, oh, is. We had our first hate mail. <laughs> woo, woo, which, we, honestly, we were like, it was so absurdly mean that it was funny. Yeah, we made it. We, made it. we were like, we've made it now. Someone yeah. out there hates us for some reason. For no apparent reason. <laughs> and I just want to let everyone know, uh, and because the Heritage Minutes are quite beloved to people. Yeah, you know, we, yeah. we love them. We care about them. I just want everyone, all of our fans, to know that... This person was not upset with the Heritage Minutes at all. They think the Heritage Minutes are great. This was <laughs> <It's> us. <laughs> this was us. They have a serious problem with us. So, uh, so that's personally. So yes. thank you, thank to, you to that individual out there uh, for um, helping us reach that milestone. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm ready. I'm ready to learn how this is all going to tie in. So to commemorate someone condescendingly yelling at us through the internet, I thought it would be a great episode to do the Rural Teacher Heritage Minute, where a young teacher is condescendingly yelled at by a group of men sitting around a table. I think that sounds great. (laughs) I totally see where you're going with this one. So for people who don't know that minute, obviously we'll post the link to the YouTube video or the Historica Canada page on that one in the description of this episode so you can watch it beforehand. Um, Or you don't have to do that, obviously. But essentially, it's a one-room schoolhouse teacher telling a group of men that, you know what's good? Reading. Your son, by the way, he read this really complicated passage. And the guy is like, I don't want to read it. I don't want to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other guy is just like, why don't you give it a read, John? And he's like, because I can't read. And you then, all know very well yeah, I can't read. This thematic music plays, and it's like... Yeah. yeah. And then it pans out, and the whole scene is based on a painting, yeah. which is a, a famous Canadian painting called A Meeting of the School Trustees by Robert Harris. Yeah. So there's a lot of directions that this episode could go in, so I tried to kind of blend all these things together. So we're going to talk about education. We're going to talk about Robert Harris, the painter. And we're also going to talk kind of like the the mystery that this minute is kind of cloaked in, which is like, is it real? Is that painting real? Is that person real? Is the setting real? Which is a mystery that Tasha Bulger investigated. So she's an assistant conservator. This is a mystery. Who knew this was a mystery? This this podcast is everything. (laughs) Mystery, murder, paintings. Everything that you'd want in an audio media platform. <laughs> yes. Grace. Why? It's a Minute Women mystery. Ooh. We, we are could like, have a new series. We're like two Nancy Drews at the same time. Oh, my gosh. You oh, like be, the Hardy Boys. We're like the Hardy Boys, but girls. <laughs> the Hardy Girls. I the was going to say, women. you can be Nancy, I'll be Drew. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> 
But yeah, so it's kind of the mystery of the painting is, is it real? And so Tasha Bulger, who is an assistant conservator of paintings at the National Gallery of Canada, tried to solve that mystery of whether or not the setting is real. She was assigned to conserve the painting a few years ago. Okay. And as she describes, the painting is set in a one-room schoolhouse in Prince Edward Island. So we do know where it takes place. Oh, on the gentle island. Yeah. Uh, the rural teacher, She's so she's standing... Uh, and she's speaking down towards her audience, who's a group of kind of like modestly but well-dressed men. And they're all sitting around a table. And these men are local trustees of the school. So right. school trustees are what we would have now. It's like a school board. Yeah. So they determine curriculum and money and all of the business side behind the school. So Robert Harris, who painted this particular work, described in a letter to his mom that the teacher is a townie, meaning that she's not from around here. Okay. But he never says what the conversation is that they're having. So that's not in any kind of written documentation, though it now is kind of looked upon as like an early feminist piece because it's a woman talking down to this group of men. I'm also interested that it was painted by a man. Yeah. Like in that time. Yeah. And it's it's also really interesting because we'll go through kind of his career, but when he He's one of the most famous painters in Canadian history, especially during this time. And this is at like the height of his career. Yeah. So like, as we'll get into, he paints portraits for like some of the most powerful people in the country. And while he's doing that, he's also decided to paint this particular work, which he was known for painting people. So he's a portrait artist. Yeah, definitely a portrait artist. He liked painting street scenes and common people, but this would have been kind of outside the realm of his other works. Like... The piece that he's most known for, especially around this time, he painted it, I think, in kind of the same five-year period, was the Fathers of Confederation, which is like that big painting of all of the men at the, I think it's the Quebec Conference. But as Bulger says, this painting kind of has this longevity because the tension of the painting really resonates with a lot of people. And the conservator, she herself is from PEI, and she says it's exactly the type of local drama that islanders love. So (laughs) she's like, people love this painting because it's far more relatable. Yeah. And so she investigates whether or not the scene that is depicted is actually real. So she it was suggested in Moncrief Williamson's book, island painter the life of robert harris that the painting is based on true events okay it's also his article in the dictionary of canadian biography on robert harris that i use as a major source just to give him credit for that um so apparently in august of 1885 harris met with a long creek school teacher by the name of kate henderson and in the foreground of the painting you can see kate henderson teacher written on one of the slates in the foreground so okay So that is the protagonist of the painting. And apparently she told Harris this anecdote of she's having trouble with the rural local trustees of the school board in PEI. Right. And she's essentially trying to adopt new techniques and new subject matter. So according to Williamson, Henderson told Harris kind of an anecdote that she's having trouble with the school trustees and that. The big problem she's having is introducing new teaching techniques and subjects into the classroom, and they're giving her a lot of pushback on that. Okay. So in addition to having her name in the foreground of the painting, there's also a booklet that says Pine Creek School, which is a fictional school based off of the Long Creek School um, that is mentioned in Williamson's account of Harris painting this. However, 
So Bulger, the conservator at the National Gallery, she dug through annual public school and education reports and census data from the 1880s, and she can't find any evidence of a Kate Henderson who taught at Long Creek during this time. So she does find a Catherine Henderson who is a teacher, but she never taught at Long Creek. So while this Catherine Henderson that she finds in the census data may be our protagonist or maybe Kate Henderson never made her way into census data, though that's kind of unlikely, Bulger concludes that it's most likely that Harris invented the story. Okay. So the mystery of it for her or the solution to it anyways is that she doesn't think it's real. But that goes against Williamson's account where he says it is very real. So I guess the question for this becomes like, where do we go with this? I will say that Wikipedia has Kate Henderson listed as a pioneer in education in Canada, like very much as a real person. (laughs) So I think someone should go edit that. I don't know how to fix Wikipedia. I'm not I'm not computer literate enough to edit Wikipedia, which is probably not a good sign. But the painting kind of represents two stories. So we're going to talk about the story of the artist who painted it and then also talk about the day-to-day struggle that he is painting, which was a very real problem in a growing country that's extremely rural. How do you educate your population? Yeah. So we're going to talk about Robert Harris and his painting and early education in rural Canada. Coming up next. Coming up next. So William Harris, a Welshman, visited Canada in 1854. So specifically, he visited Upper Canada. William had been raised with the fascination of becoming a gentleman farmer. However, in his native Wales, that was highly unlikely. Okay, so what? what's a gentleman farmer? What makes you a gentleman farmer as opposed to just a farmer? So... In our Irish Orphans episode, we talked about tenant farmers. Yeah. So those are the people, they don't own the land. Right. They rent the land and they just get a cut of whatever is produced. Right. Gentlemen farmers tend to own land. And so they kind of have more income based on that. And also landed gentry is the most significant way you can make wealth and make money during that period of time. So he wants to be landed gentry. He wants to own land and farm the land. But in Wales, as in Ireland, that's very difficult because there is not a lot of land. William was also described as being unqualified for any trade or profession and ultimately was just an impractical dreamer. Historians are brutal. (laughs) What I have learned from the Minute Women podcast (laughs) is that historians are just like... We're just constantly trying to feel better about ourselves. So we're going to put down anybody we can. This guy sucked. (laughs) He's so impractical. He has no trade or profession. He's such an impractical dreamer. (laughs) But if William emigrated to Canada, he would have a better opportunity to become landed gentry because there's more land and less competition. Right. So you have a better chance at owning land if you come to Canada, which is the big thing that draws the vast majority of immigrants. So after visiting Upper Canada, William decided to move his whole family to the New World, including his second child and the subject of our story, Robert Harris, who had been born in 1849. So Robert's father was eventually persuaded to go to Prince Edward Island to try his hand at farming or business instead of taking the family to Upper Canada. So in 1856, the Harris family moved to Prince Edward Island via Liverpool. And Robert huh. celebrated his seventh birthday on the family's crossing of the Atlantic aboard the Isabel. Aww. A sea birthday. <laughs> so his father entered a partnership to process and can lobster and pork. 
not quite farming, but not quite. <laughs> you can do what you got to do when yeah. you come to the island. And his mother, Sarah, took charge of the family as they moved from house to house to make sure that the children received good educations. The boys were sent to Prince Wales College in Charlottetown, and from a very early age, Robert was almost totally preoccupied with drawing, and he would copy illustrations from English magazines as soon as they arrived in Prince Edward Island. Oh, he had a passion. He had a passion, and Sarah always encouraged her son and had painting material sent all the way from Liverpool for him, oh, which is cute. What a good mommy. What a good mom. Robert was also a talented musician, and growing up in Charlottetown offered him a strong musical community. However, there was less community support or schooling for his true passion, painting. So Robert decided he needed to leave PEI in order to further pursue his artistic career. Furthermore, as much as he loved sketching the beautiful landscape, he wanted to find interesting people who would allow him to paint them, which I guess... You just can't find a bee. Can't find interesting people on the island. What a diss. He's like, I need to find interesting subjects, (laughs) mom. (laughs) He knew his best shot at success would be going to Liverpool because... He, they had family connections there, so his mother's family is originally from Liverpool, and they would help support him on his uh, journeys. But Robert faced two major hurdles at this time. One, the project would require a lot of money, uh, money to get there, money to buy supplies and materials. And secondly, Robert was only 15 years old. I was going to say, how old <laughs> How old is this little dreamer? This impractical dreamer is only 15 years old at the time. So the solution to both of these problems was to work for surveyor Henry Cundall of Charlottetown. So he was a man who deeply loved PEI and believed very much in the spirit of improvement. Condal was an exceptionally frugal man, and Robert only received a very small pay for the work that he did in his office. The low pay, however, meant it also took Robert three years to save enough money to go to Liverpool. So by 1867, he was now 18 and had enough money to go to England. So these all sound like good things. (laughs) Like, this sounds like he did the right thing. It sounds like, I mean, yeah, he like, he needed the money. The dude that he worked for wasn't great, but... With the amount of time it forced him to work there, he is now of age to do whatever he wants. And has some cash in his pocket. And he's got it, like, pockets lined. He is ready to go. So once Robert Harris arrived in Liverpool, he immediately got his hands on a student pass to the Public Library and Museum, both of which contain displays of natural history, collections of casts from antiquity, and modern statues. He would sketch studies of these subjects, a practice he took with him no matter where he lived. He especially loved the casts since it required accuracy and taught him how to proportion the human body. Portrait art would remain Harris's passion and become the staple of his career. So he's doing well. I mean, I think it's good that he got to Liverpool and was immediately like, I need to spend all my money on books and on passes to public libraries and museums rather than like booze <laughs> which i feel like is the thing that most of us do he's an extremely responsible 18 year old he sounds extremely responsible yeah harris spent three months in england mostly in liverpool before returning to charlottetown on his return he again found employment with Cundall, and he did accounting for a lawyer i don't know why he's like gotta go back <laughs> <laughs> clearly this panned out the first time i guess it did I pan also out the first time don't know why in all of these stories if you're a like white male who has some type of money <laughs> lawyers are just like come work for us yeah i was gonna say he has no uh, i don't know what ability he has in accounting neither did johnny mcdonald 
<laughs> At least he went to law school and had a like someone to train under. He didn't go to law school, but he had a mentor. Yeah, I, I don't think he's so. ever done accounting before. No, now it's just like he, they just gave him a pencil and a grid, and they're like, figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> How much money did I make? Oh, uh, two dollars. He has one of those things. What are they called? Where you slide the beads over? Oh, yeah, I know what you mean. <sighs> So unsurprisingly, working for Kundal again made Harris more determined than ever to become a portrait painter. <laughs> this dude, he doesn't like working for this dude so much as the catalyst for everything else in his life. <laughs> so Harris's career started to take off. In 1872, through connections his mother made, Harris was commissioned to paint portraits of the speakers of the PEI House of Assembly. He was paid $30 a canvas. He was also hired to complete a painting of William Garvey, the Commissioner of Public Works and Mines in Nova Scotia, and David Honeyman, curator of the Provincial Museum in Halifax. In Halifax. Halifax. <laughs> Honeyman. That is a bomb last name. I know. I was so hung up on the word Honeyman that I messed up the word Halifax. How is it, how is it spelled? Is it spelled like you uh, think? Yeah, honey. Honey man. man. Okay. Imagine if you just marry someone named Honey Man. He's like, uh, he's your Honey Man. <laughs> Sweet like honey, man. <laughs> he's a little he's a little bitter though, actually. Honeyman said that he would only pay for the painting if it was good. If oh. it is good is the exact quote. <laughs> that's, that's even better when you're a little bit sour with the last name Honeyman. Yeah. Also it's so subjective. You can be like, I hate it. Give it to me for free. It's true. <laughs> Don't sign those contracts, Robert. No. <laughs> he does need a lawyer. <laughs> Get John A in. <laughs> Call the Prime Minister. I'm excited for the first Heritage Minute that there's like a crossover. Like Mm. there definitely will be some because some of them are about similar events. It's just about different people. So I'm excited for the first time we have like, yeah, yeah, a a distant relation in our Heritage Minute episodes. I don't think it's going to happen today, but... (laughs) So all these commissions would be completed in Boston because Harris left for Boston in January 1873. His time in Boston closely resembled his time in Liverpool, so he's spending long days and nights in public museums and galleries sketching the paintings that were available to him to study. Okay. Which, it was. it's always funny when you go to, because I don't think it's really a common practice now to go into a museum and see people sketching, but yeah. I visited Philadelphia and every single museum there were students sketching yeah. something like i don't know if it's just like we don't have a big art school here but like even yeah. if you go to like musée de beaux arts in montreal i've never seen yeah. people in there sketching i think one of the things is it's not that because we do have nascad which is the nova scotia yeah um college of art and design i think that's why i think i got the acronym right you're in the ballpark sorry if i didn't <laughs> but i think it's just that our we don't have a spectacular art gallery like the art gallery of nova scotia um is is i feel like more focused on almost like heritage it's it's i think that they have a specific audience that they're targeting and that's not a problem like i think the museums that i typically see people sketching in it's like a rodin museum where you have these big statues that you can sketch out and that makes it great for anatomy and things like that that's the thing. I, yeah. I don't think people are in museums to sketch paintings on the wall. They're there to yeah. sketch sculptures. For and sure. Sketching a Maude Lewis doesn't really help you, I don't no, think. No, that's not. <laughs> exactly. Uh, cool exhibit, though. But yeah, because when I, it's same thing as you talking about Philadelphia. When I was in New York, New York at the MoMA, yeah, people were just sitting around everywhere just like sketching, sketching. things. Yeah. Yeah. During this time, he also illustrated some books. So he illustrated for the publisher Shepard and Gill. 
So what he enjoyed drawing the most, however, were, were the life subjects at the Lowell Institute. So four mornings a week, he attended Dr. William Rimmer's classes in art anatomy. So those are the ones where it's like a new life model and they're sketching them. He drew he naked loved, people. That's what he enjoyed the most. <laughs> Ew, gross. Ew. <laughs> We're going to get really like juvenile in this episode. <laughs> It's not the minute women anymore. It's the minute girls. <laughs> minute ladies. Minute ladies. I'm a lady. <laughs> Silly goose. <laughs> so in the afternoons and evenings, he would draw either in his lodgings or at the Boston Athenaeum. But such intense work was taking its toll. The eye strain eventually meant he couldn't work at night at all. He wrote his mother, I can work all day without feeling any inconvenience at all, but I cannot do anything at night. A specialist he consulted ordered Harris to go home to PEI and rest for at least six months. So in the April of 1874, Harris returned to PEI, but his time there was extremely short. And by the end of that six month period, he was straight back in Boston. Oh, I thought you were going to say he died. <laughs> and then that was it. Yeah, you were like, but his stay was, ex- his stay was extremely short because he did. I love that's the expectation <laughs> that I've established for all of these stories. Yes. Because everybody's dead. Everybody's dead. As soon as they get attached to someone just a little bit, it's like, oh. No, no. Yeah. Remember, also, they're dead. It's such like an ironic fate for him. He's just like, he loves painting so much that it's ruining his ability oh. to paint. Like, he can't see anymore at night. He can't paint at night oh. anymore. Harris is solidifying himself as an artist during this time, though. Um, so he ends up spending two years in Boston, and his style of portraits was greatly influenced by the type of art that they're doing there. So that art, it falls into the Barbizon school, which emphasizes realism. So if you look at his paintings, they're very realistic portraits. Yeah. He also became really well known for detailed eyes. So that's like his calling card, which again, ironic because he has bad eyes. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's like a. He's just trying to compensate. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to draw the most accurate, beautiful eyes because mine are broken. Yeah. I'm very sad about it. <laughs> I'm sure that's exactly my what he sounded like. My eyes don't work. Is that a song or is that just your song? No, that's my song. Okay. Yeah, I'm a songwriter on the side. <laughs> so <laughs> in October of 1876, Harris had saved enough money to move back to England. We're just going all over the place. He is just jumping around. It's mostly him just not wanting to be in Prince Edward Island. But just like I have to keep reminding myself when I listen to these minutes and you're like, yeah, they like went from here to here to here to here. Like, that's not like us. That's not like, oh, you just hop on a plane and it takes four hours to get where you want to go if it's far away. Like, yeah, for sure. And he's lugging more than the average person, too. I think he's got to take all of his art supplies and stuff with him. And I don't see any like evidence that he's traveling with people like he just kind of goes by himself which is scary in its own right I think about when I moved away from home and I was like not good at it I was (laughs) very much not good at moving away from home and I was like calling home every single day imagine if you don't have like the phone to like call people that you like know and love that'd be sad anyways uh (laughs) moving on moving on he's moving back to England So his intention was to continue his self-education by studying works and copying paintings at the National Gallery while financially supporting himself with commissions 
And most of these commissions are coming from his hometown. So it's people from PEI commissioning him. That's really cool. So they'll mail him photographs and then he'll turn them into portraits and mail them back. That's so cool. But I love that it's his home community that's just like, oh, the yeah. Harris boy. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> he's a good painter. Yeah. Yeah. He's really just, figured it just, out. Just just sit there for a minute, love. Well, I just, yeah, there you go. We'll send that to the Harris boy to paint. Yeah. <laughs> now we're going to send this in the mail and the mail will get to Harris and Harris is going to get the paint picture and Mind then he's gonna blow. paint it and mail it back <laughs> and mail it the back process <sighs> harris became frustrated with the national gallery however because it wasn't very accommodating to students so students were only allowed to set up easels on two days a week on thursdays and fridays so on those days all of these hopeful student artists flood the galleries and so right. you're like fighting elbow to elbow to get any easel space so he found working in the flooded galleries really difficult okay and so eventually he decides that he's going to enroll at the Slade School of Fine Art. And then later he attended the Heatherly School of Fine Art. But schooling just wasn't for Harris. So he's just like, I can't I can't work with these people in this crowded gallery. I can't work in this confined school setting. So what he decides to do is that he's just going to go to Paris. So he's, we're off again. Oh, okay. Just <laughs> this is casual. our fourth country. <laughs> just Let's just go to Paris. Fifth, actually, if you include Wales. We're, this one's globetrotting. So he's, he's off to Paris in October of 1877, and there he joins up with a group of young painters who all work under Léon Bonnat. So while in Paris, Harris adopted not only a really strong work ethic, but he started using more rich colors and he fell in love with some more impressionistic techniques. So Look at him go. I know. He, so he's like, it doesn't have to be photorealistic. We're going to do some impressionistic stuff. We're going to use rich colors. Also, I've got all these cool Paris friends now. He's cool. He's cool. He's, you know, he's he living He is it. a typical young man he's in a, Europe. He's a typical lo- young man. He loves the French lifestyle and customs. Probably loves the French ladies. ladies. <laughs> there was one problem, though. Uh-oh. The Paris sun. Which I've never heard of anyone complaining about how sunny Paris is. Yeah, no. But for Harris, his eyes were increasingly bothering him, and he found that the sunlight of Paris aggravated his eyesight troubles. He thinks the sunlight of Paris is different <laughs> than the sunlight. I guess it's just like of other areas. England's real cloudy. PEI is probably kind of cloudy, and Boston, cloud central. <laughs> but I Paris guess. is just blazing heat. Constantly, I, I guess that's I, to me. It was just so strange. I was like, I don't think the climate of Paris is all that different from the climate of Boston. No, I, it's I guess not England the desert. Is... <laughs> it still rains in Paris. Like, yeah. I mean, I visited Paris. It wasn't like sunny every day. No, and it's also yeah. It's also October. It's like over the winter months. He's a whiny baby. <laughs> My eyes hurt. Oh. I need to go home to my mom because my eyes hurt. So it gets worse. So he, Of course it gets worse. So he was so passionate about his art that he refused to read. So he's like, I have to save all of my eye strength for painting. Wait, wait, wait. His so, whole life or did he know how to read? So he knows how to read. But right. as an adult and as his eyes start to bother him, he refuses to read. So in Boston and Charlottetown, it wasn't a problem because he could always find someone to read for him. But when he's in Paris, everyone is French speaking, so they can't necessarily read English and he can't find anyone to read to him. 
Okay. <laughs> Our protagonist is a little whiny. Harris is needy. A little needy. Like, I, I get it. Yeah. It's just like, it's that person you know who's like only interested in one thing. He's so committed and devoted to painting that he refuses to do everything else. And that's going to be your problem. It's not just his problem. Gonna, oh, I thought you meant that was going to be my problem. Like, I'm too focused oh. on one thing. And I was like, Linnea, I've been meaning to have a really... Wait, uh, I just call me out here on the way, podcast. You're way too devoted to chicken nuggets. And I think we really need to talk about it. I love chicken nuggets. You just had some. I know. They're so good. I know. Shh. Don't tell them my secrets. <laughs> so, with a heavy heart, Harris once again returned to Charlottetown. <laughs> We're getting back to home base. Keeps calling him back. And it does appear that he meant to stay this time. So it seems like, you know, he was getting into the groove of island life. He was just going to settle down and make his life there. But he was encouraged by some friends to move to Toronto, where he was warmly welcomed into the art community. And it's there that his career really took off. And he's painting portraits. He's painting street scenes that demonstrate his empathy for the common man. I will say that he's very, despite coming from a fairly upper class family, he's very committed to drawing the life of common people. Like, yeah, that's worthy of art as well. And I mean, I feel like some of that might come from just you were talking about uh, people from PEI uh, getting him to paint pictures. Yeah. Of them. You know, I feel like you become I feel like you're a bit more real. If it's just common people in common places, yeah. it's not someone posing for a perfect photo. It's you're able to to probably be a little bit more, put a little bit more of yourself into it. Yeah, and I think there is something to a small rural community where right. the barriers between classes just aren't as prevalent. Exactly. It's like you just don't have the option to isolate yourself into a yeah. community of like wealthy elites because there aren't enough wealthy elites yeah. to have a community. In January 1880, Harris received an official letter from a colleague informing him that the Governor General had nominated him as a founding member of the Canadian and then later the Royal Canadian Academy of Arts. Oh, that's fancy. So like, yeah, now we've got this like seal of approval. That's like a title. That's like you made it. He's a professional. He's profesh. Yeah, I uh, like that. That's the word Harris would use. He wrote home. He's like, Mom, I'm profesh. And she was like, okay, sweetie. (laughs) Gotta go milk the cow. Great. So because of Harris's extensive experience in illustration, he was contacted on February 4th, 1888 by John Gordon Brown, who is the editor of the Toronto Globe. Okay. So he is being contacted so he can go to Lucan, Ontario, where James Donnelly and members of his family had been murdered. Okay, (laughs) And he's being hired to sketch the accused men of the homicide. So there's seven men. They're hiring like the greatest portraiture artist in Canada to do sketches of the men that they're accusing. Why? I guess it's just so that he can like they can like publish it in the Toronto Globe. Like I suppose. So rather than photographs, they're going to put the sketches of the accused men. It seems uh, aggressive to do all seven, though. Yeah. It's like because six of them are innocent and now they're going to be in a newspaper and drawn as murderers. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's good good that this episode could keep with the trend of getting murder in the episode somewhere. That sounds like history. (laughs) You look back at our history books, it's like, oh, three of them probably didn't do it, but let's just... uh... The majority of these men are innocent, but uh, yeah, murderers (laughs) for life. We're just not sure. So let's just say all of them. 
So Harris traveled to London, Ontario, where the prisoners awaited their trial. And once he got there, they were doing everything in their ability to, like, hide their faces from okay, him. So was, was he acting as a courtroom artist? I guess so. It seems that way. Okay. Like, it, it that makes more sense. Yeah. So I think he's, like, in the courtroom. But it's a high-profile case. So they wanted, like, a really good, yeah. a really good artist to do this. Yeah. All right. That makes definitely. sense. Definitely. And, but Harris, who's a skilled observer uh, and very quick with his pencil, managed to draw them very accurately. Oh. So he's like the superhero of sketching. And he's just like, despite the fact that you're wearing masks and hiding your faces from me, I managed to sketch your likeness. He's a he's super a, human. Yeah, super artist. Artist man. <laughs> He then went on to Lucan to sketch scenes of the crime as well. Ew. I know. I don't. I. It, it didn't really go into detail of how how bad it was. That's dark. I, yeah. I don't know. But Brown from the Toronto Globe was delighted with the results and delighted. Would later, absolutely delighted. He's like, "This is the best thing that's ever happened to me. This is the best picture of a murder scene I've ever seen. <laughs> I feel like I was right there. <laughs> I feel like the knife was in my hand." <laughs> Uh, but this would lead to later commissions for illustrations, including portraits of the members of the syndicate to construct the Canadian Pacific Railway. Huh. So big projects. Cool. Harris was also a high Anglican. So in terms of his church and a big reason that he likes Toronto is what is because they have a large Anglican community and he can go and listen to good sermons. Uh, another pleasure he took in going to church was taking out his sketchbook and drawing pretty young ladies in the congregation. Oh, my word. I'm going to say, though, I'm I'm Anglican and an Anglican church service is like um, it's like a middle aged woman's aerobics class. It's like you're up, you're down, you kneel, you sit, you you pray, you walk, you 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 do communion, you come back, you sit, you stand, you sing like it's you're just constantly yeah. moving. Like, I feel like I get more steps at a church service than I do <laughs> than I do working some Walking days. around town. You know? Uh, so I'm surprised he had time to sketch. He's like up and down and up and down and sketching. <laughs> I'm a Catholic, so there's a lot of standing and sitting, but I describe it more as, uh, as the comedian John Mulaney described it. It's just dad singing really loud. Yeah. A lot of dads singing to try and get their kids to sing. Yeah. So it's like if I sing loud enough, eventually he's going to join in. No, the Anglican church out. is filled with much movement. <laughs> much movement. There's a little, in the Catholic church, you have the little like things Benches? that come out to like kneel on, like the yep. soft things. We're big kneelers. Yeah. You hit your ankles on those all the time because you're up, you're down, you're sitting, you're kneeling, you're standing. Anyway, I'm impressed that he had time to draw pretty ladies. Yeah. I like, I wonder if he caught them in motion or if he's more of just like a <laughs> catch them while they're sitting huh, at, his, his best, at his best best. What did he do with these pictures of pretty ladies? I think they're just for him. That's nice. <laughs> I don't think he does anything uh, else with them. Not weird. <laughs> it's not weird at all. So who wrote that? Well, do you know what source that's from? That's, that's from funny. the Williamson article. That's that's funny. <laughs> he has a very detailed <laughs> account of his life. And like, I because like Wikipedia is usually where you start to try and find some other sources. Wikipedia has maybe two paragraphs. This Williamson guy wrote a whole book and this article, and this article is like a solid like 18 paragraphs. Obsessed. Maybe? I love yeah, it. Obsessed with uh, Harris. Yeah. So while Harris did love Toronto and painting all the pretty ladies at his church, uh, he did start growing tired of the city. So he complained of the strain of having to work with those sitters who patronize the arts. The people who want portraits are those who know nothing of art. 
Huh. So he's just like the people who can afford to have a portrait done. Yeah, are idiots so and don't gonna, know anything about art. This is what I was kind of saying about the people from PEI commissioning pieces. Like I feel like those would be more interesting for him. Yeah, than the people who are like, okay, make me look absolutely perfect. It's like it's like now with like Photoshop filters. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like yeah. don't make me look how I actually look. Make me look like the, the best, best version, version of, of myself. Yeah. When they look up, they're like, oh yeah, that's you. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, yeah, I think some of his other like portraits were just what brought in the money. Right. And he's really good at it. So he right. makes a lot of money from doing so it. But I, I don't think it's what he loves to do necessarily. Yeah. It was time for him to refresh himself by returning to Europe. <laughs> we're back. <laughs> of course. So after finishing the portraits he had in hand, he disposed of several unsold paintings through public auction, returned to Prince Edward Island, and then sailed to Liverpool in October of 1881. Of course he did. And it was on this second trip abroad that, or I guess it's his third trip abroad, uh, Harris planned his masterwork, The Fathers of Confederation. Okay. So that's, it's, we're kind of entering to the, the high point of his career. Yeah, and um, that's kind of a crossover. Yeah, I think so. Also the CPR. We talked about Canadian yeah. Railway a little bit. Because, you know, our first Prime Minister, John A. Macdonald, loves trains. Loved. Loves trains. Loved. Because he's dead. Because he's dead. <laughs> they're all dead. <laughs> but uh, all those fathers of Confederation, yeah. dead. Dead. Really dead. <laughs> Harris? Spoiler alert, dead. What? <laughs> <laughs> those people that got murdered? Dead, dead. Dead. <laughs> they're super dead. So dead. <laughs> so Harris returns to Canada. Uh, working closely with the government to complete several different projects. This time he's living out of Montreal. He was told by colleagues that he would have he would like Montreal a lot more because it's more European in, in flair, which is yeah. probably true to this day. Yeah. Um, friends found lodging for him at a boarding house uh, at, of one of their widowed friends. So he has okay. friends who have a friend who's widowed and she runs a boarding house. And she also has an extremely attractive 23-year-old daughter named Elizabeth Putman. And Ooh. Harris promptly fell in love with her. Of course he did. The following year in 1885. Is that how she's described by the historians? <laughs> yes. Extremely she's attractive? Extremely, well, oh, attractive. All oh, right. <laughs> I put extremely. You I like extremely. I like things to be extreme. Yeah. Um, I wonder if they, like, he's in church standing up and down, standing up and down, sees her from across the room. He's like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that butt. <laughs> <laughs> and the Lord's like. Robert. He's like, oh, and he's sorry. Like, oh, right. Okay. Sorry. 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 <laughs> Not in your house. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so the following year in 1885, the couple was married. Of course they were. Just, you know. And he calls her Bessie. Oh. Which, I'm sorry. That's a cow. <laughs> like, Bessie is always a cow to me. I'm sorry if there's any Bessies out there. But no one nicknames Elizabeth Bessie uh, anymore. Yeah, I don't know. I, I genuinely think that. People associate that name so much with a cow that they don't give it to people yeah. anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you said Bessie, I'd be like word association cow. Yeah, exactly. So. so he refers to her as his lovely Bessie and she poses in many of his popular canvases, including the meeting of the school trustees. So oh. she's the teacher, actually, like the model. Um, Interesting. So this painting garnered a lot of acclaim and has maintained a lot of popularity because of its feminist theme of portraying a young woman teacher in a one-room schoolhouse addressing a group of older male trustees. Right. Um, so this painting has the, the most longevity, and he painted it right after he got married to Elizabeth. 
Um, so we're now like transitioning our story a little bit. We're going to pivot and we're going to talk about that. Pivot. 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 <laughs> it was an accurate representation of the state of education in Canada for decades. So to begin, the schoolhouse. Rural schools throughout Canada were generally simple buildings that reflected what local residents could afford and construct themselves. Yeah. They were generally rectangular structures of wood, brick, or stone consisting of a classroom and perhaps a cloakroom or a closet for storage. So very simple structures. Have you ever been to the uh, Highland Village in Iona? Yeah. Yeah, they have like a one-room schoolhouse they that you do. can go and like play it's, around in. It's really cute there. Like, you, it's were, pretty... you were in a one-room schoolhouse in a movie. No, it wasn't a one-room schoolhouse. Oh. It was supposed to be like a real school. Oh. Like with more than one room. You were in one room of a school in a movie. I was. <laughs> I was. A uh, little shout out to Shattered City. Shattered the City. story of the Hellbox explosion. I am. <laughs> Linnea's one I am credit. St- student number three. <laughs> Girl student number three. Girl student number three. <laughs> like most rural Canadian homes, most of these schools did not have electricity or indoor plumbing and they were heated by wood stoves. The furnishing uh, was very minimal. Teachers were generally equipped with a desk, some books and maps, a blackboard, chalk and brushes, a globe. Fancy. Fancy. A A map and a globe. I know. We're going to make it flat and then we're going to make it round. Just so we can have debate. Just so we can debate about it. Yeah. (laughs) Which one's right? (laughs) You decide. And then they would also have like dictionaries, bells, you know. Yeah. School stuff. School stuff. They provide them with modest school stuff. I bet they had some chalk. Yeah, definitely some chalk. Yeah. Everyone's hacking along. Yeah. Yeah. The schools were often unsanitary and unsafe. Uh, oh. Ventilation was inadequate. There was no running water. And since they were often built from wood and heated with an open furnace, the risk of fire was ever present. Do you remember? Did you ever watch Holes? The movie Holes? Yeah. They have a one-room schoolhouse that burns down in that yeah, movie. But I think that's dudes that were like, we're going to burn it down. Yeah, I think that was... But that imagery. Yeah. Everywhere in Canada. That's a plaguing great... schools. <laughs> that's a great... That's a really great book. The book is really great. I've actually never read the book. Yeah, that's... But this is a common theme of I our friendship. I was going to say, yeah, a little sidebar. <laughs> I've read the book. Grace hasn't. Yeah. Always. D- despite me doing the research for this, I'm really yeah. unread. <laughs> In these unsanitary conditions, the risk of contracting a contagious disease such as diphtheria or typhoid was really high, a situation that was exacerbated by factors such as overcrowding or when human waste seeped into the wells. Yeah. Because the past is terrible. People who are like, I want to time travel. No. Yeah. Just just read any accurate description of the past. You're just like, nope, that's not for me. Nope. (laughs) Harris also accurately represented the often tense relationships between teachers and their board of trustees. Colonial and later provincial departments of education officials typically provided only minimal direction with regards to courses, textbooks, qualifications, and administration, which meant that local boards of trustees were left to handle most educational matters. I'm not sure exactly how it's structured, and it definitely changes over time, but there is some sense that PEI, the government, provincial government, would pr- be providing some level of provincial authority or yeah. direction. But what they tell the trustees, which are the local school boards, is very minimal. So right. they don't really provide like provincial curriculum, for example. Right. I feel like those trustees are just like, God is good. Never talk about sex. Yeah. And, yeah. and that would be a big <laughs> problem is that, you know. 
depending on how religious your community is, there's going to be a lot of things that they can and can't do. I think in that Heritage Minute, he's reading, she's she's telling the man that her son read a complicated passage from the from Bible. From the Bible, yeah. 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 So, yeah, there's a lot of religious education as well. Yeah. Since trustees often controlled funding, the procurement of equipment and hiring decisions, rural teachers were often just completely at their mercy. So okay. you also have no protections as a teacher. There's nothing to say that they can't just fire you because Wait, you're is not. Wait, is this happening in the year 2020? Because <laughs> Ooh, two, mic drop. Two parents in the yeah. <laughs> who are teachers. Yeah, this is a shout out to your parents. Woof. Woof. <laughs> <laughs> Furthermore, in rural communities, the small student populations and small tax bases made hiring qualified teachers too expensive. So, you know, all the really qualified teachers are just going to go to cities where they can make more money compared to rural communities that have to try and attract teachers to stay there. So, you know, totally different from today. (laughs) Rather than close the schools due to vacancies, typically they would prefer to hire unqualified, inexperienced teachers. So just because you don't have a qualified teacher does not mean you can't have a school. Anyone can be a teacher if you put them in front of a classroom. (laughs) Your education is not what makes you a teacher. No, absolutely not. It is a setting thing. It's a a vibe. It's a vibe. (laughs) It's a feeling. It's not really an interview. We're just having a conversation to feel you out. Yeah. No, you don't need to provide me with a resume. It's fine. I can read you really well. What's your sign? (laughs) (laughs) Most rural teachers only had some combination of high school work and a couple months of professional training as experience. Others had no formal qualifications whatsoever. So a whole range of qualification levels in rural schools. Rural teachers were also most commonly women because... Women, when they go to urban centers, they're not going to get paid as much anyways. Right. So, you know, the lower salary isn't as unattractive to them. If anything, it's like I can have a little independence. Right. And we're still in a time where kind of men are doing the work for the household. Exactly. Women are taking care of the household. So the fact that the women are going out and working at all is a big step for feminism and equality. Yeah. and, And these women are, for the most part, unmarried. Oh, okay. So, so, so these are younger women. Yeah. So they the usual range is between seventeen and twenty three years old. Shoot, which okay. is young. That's babies. Imagine being seventeen years old and being like, "All right, I'm a teacher. <laughs> Sit down, you twelve year olds." <laughs> so that's the the largest demographic of teachers are these young unmarried women, and it's largely due to the fact that this teaching is seen as appropriate work for women. Um, right. And again, the low pay doesn't attract men to the jobs. Right. So men can make more money if they go work in the woods or if they're working on farms or something like that. Yeah. Work was largely viewed as a short-term source of income as well because it's expected that these women are going to get married and then once they're married, they'll become housewives and they won't work anymore. And then won't work. Yeah, yes. won't be able to be teachers. Exactly. So I do think generally there is a perception that parents weren't particularly attentive to or wanting their children to go to school in rural communities. They're like, I just have kids so they can work on the farm. Yeah. Uh, But generally, parents were very encouraging of getting their children to attend some level of school because basic academic training was viewed very positively and it could help back home. So, you know, if you have a kid who can do basic math, that's going to help you keep the books on your own little farm. Right. School was seen to provide social benefits, so kids get to meet kids. I also have to imagine that, like, parents just are like, please don't be around me 24-7. 
Please yeah. go do something. Before Jimmy can actually, you know, help out with the farm, he can go to school for a while. <laughs> Please. Meet some kids. Yeah, meet some other kids. Um, and there were religious teachings as well. So those were seen to be character building. Of course. Most rural teachers focused on teaching educational basics such as reading, writing, arithmetic, spelling, and geography. Huh. Organizing such lessons was a huge challenge, though, because when you're in a one-room schoolhouse, you have kids of every single age in the same right. room, and so they all have different abilities. And so your day would largely be structured around teaching one specific group yeah. something, and then the rest of the kids have some kind of independent work that they're doing. Right. And so... Really, you're usually as a student getting like one lesson a day and yeah. for the rest of the day, you're practicing your writing or you're practicing your reading. Yeah. Um, and so, probably helping out with working with the little kids. So if like you're yeah. one of those like 12 year olds, you could be helping like a six year old with their math. For problem. sure. For sure. And they're also supposed to be responsible for lighting the wood stoves right. in the morning. They're supposed to be going like keeping the the building in good shape so they're doing small repairs they're cleaning the school and yeah they're helping to supervise smaller kids right. on their breaks and on their lunch however school attendance was a huge problem throughout rural canada there are several factors that would have limited a child's ability to attend classes including the need to help their parents with work so particularly farming during the harvest season that's why we have summer vacation that's yeah. like a holdover from that way of of yeah. life uh, snowstorms, uh, poor weather conditions also meant it was hard. And often schools, it took a long, there were long, arduous treks to get to these rural communities. Uphill both ways, barefoot in the snow. Yeah, absolutely. Not to After mention. After eating split pea soup for a week. <laughs> my grandfather's story. <laughs> After I worked hard days in the field, I would walk both ways uphill to school. <laughs> yeah, but barefoot. Barefoot. It's always barefoot. And there's a meter of snow on the ground. Yes. So Harris kind of captures the tense relationship that would have taken place in these schools and the restoration work that Bolger did at the National Gallery on this particular piece revealed even further tensions in the relationship. Okay. So before her restoration, you couldn't read the things that were in the foreground. So the thing that shows that her name, Kate Henderson, is on the booklet. It also shows that there's inscriptions on the slate that says, it says Ool Trustees, so it's cut in half. So it would have said school trustees, but okay. the slate board is cut in half. So Ool <laughs> Trustees meeting next day. So this was meant as Kate Henderson is preparing for this meeting. So she right. knows this meeting is coming and she knows that she's probably been prepping for it for a right. while. As Bulger wrote, although Harris left the details of the meeting's conversation to speculation, we can be certain that the trustees' response represented an overall unease towards change, whether the changes occurred in government, on the homestead, or in a one-room schoolhouse. So in that sense, even today, we still have a lot in common with the characters portrayed here. Originally, Harris wanted to call the painting meeting of the school trustees of a back settlement school, the teacher talking them over. So oh. that was the original full title of the painting. They that's, got cut down. I was going to say, that's a bit long, but also like <laughs> snap. Yeah. Talking them over. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> yeah. So obviously talking them over means that she's trying to convince them of something. Yeah. She's trying to initiate positive change. Yeah. We're hoping. <laughs> Over time, one-room schoolhouses became unfeasible and were steadily replaced by more centrally located larger schools. This was made possible by the expansion of roads and the increased accessibility of cars and buses in the 20th century. 
Harris, one of the individuals who commemorated the contribution of these teachers to Canadian society, continued to find success after 1885. So yeah. after this painting comes out, he kind of continues to, to work and he becomes a very prestigious artist in Canada. Years of hard work and administration combined with poor health and eyesight did not stop him from sketching all through his life, well into the kind of twilight years of his career. Aww. After a holiday in PEI, he's always going back. <laughs> he just loves the gentle he loves island. It. In the summer of eight, 1918, he returned to Montreal and began negotiations for a proposed portrait of Francis Lovett Carter Cotton. But it was not to be. Oh. Harris was almost totally blind and could barely move from his sofa. He died on the 27th of February, 1919. At a memorial ceremony in Harris's honor, his former student, George Reed, stated... Much more might be said of the work and worth of Robert Harris, but modesty was one of his distinguishing traits, and we hesitate to give him that praise which he so richly merited, knowing that to him the work was everything and the worker nothing. It seems fitting, therefore, that we may never know if Kate Henderson was real or not, because the work she and thousands of other one-room schoolhouse teachers did was everything and the worker nothing. Oh, great. Ooh, we're ending it in a sentimental way. Feelings. <laughs> so that's the story. Hashtag feminism. Hashtag feminism. <laughs> so that's the story of Robert Harris to the point that he kind of does this painting and then yeah. the work that he decided to portray. I think it's really interesting when people at the height of their careers decide to do things like like what, what ends up being their passion projects. Yeah. Because I, clearly he didn't love painting rich white people yeah <laughs> that wasn't his passion that wasn't his jam he but loves he painting people yeah but yeah I think it's really interesting that at the height of his career he's gonna paint this like just rural teacher I think that's awesome talking over talking them over talking some that. school trustees over yeah I'm gonna go talk some people over later <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm gonna I want to incorporate that yeah. into my my vernacular I like that it's like that's fun. listen I'm going to talk you over later, yeah. but I'm busy right now. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Yeah. Well, that's definitely one of the heritage moments that I remember, like being on TV yeah. and watching it and uh, like talking about it and, and seeing it. So, yeah. And I think it it is an interesting one to choose because it is so broad as to what it commemorates. Yeah. And. Uh, the most of the the examples of rural schools that I was using mostly talks about like what it was like in a PEI rural school. Right. It's slightly different across the country, like yeah. prairie schools in particular. <laughs> I don't know why. There's a lot of sources that are specifically about the prairie school. So okay. I think it's because they serve as big community centers as well, right. typically. Like they're the hub of the community. And very isolated. And yeah, and I think more isolated than anywhere you could be in PEI. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's an interesting heritage minute because I think it's almost more motivated by the painting. Right. Like you really want to commemorate that painting. And again, that painting is in a stamp. That painting was yeah. like. And they remember. Yeah, they commemorate that painting in like a moment in this heritage. Minute. Yeah. They like at the very end, they like zoom out. And it's like I love the last scene because yeah. it's like the, the guy who's just got called out for being illiterate puts his hand like his fist down on the table and then it zooms out and yeah. then it becomes the painting, the painting. <laughs> very dramatic it is but yeah it is. yeah well thanks grace no problem. that was a fun one yeah it's not too bad there was murder there was murder there was definitely murder in this one as soon as i saw that i was like Phew, okay like, everything's gonna be right, fine everything's good <laughs> we have something to ground us in somebody Some, dies something we're familiar with
yeah. Well, thanks for tuning in, guys, uh, to another week of the Minute Movement Podcast. Just want to remind everyone to just go give us a follow, rate, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can follow us on Instagram at Minute Women Podcast and Facebook, the same handle. And we also have a Twitter. We, again, have not been super active yeah, on Twitter. We're going to get better. We're going to get better. It's at the Minute Women. Yeah. Just at the Minute Women. So, yeah, you can follow us and see what we're doing in between episodes. And make sure you leave us a comment saying what minute you want us to do next. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thank you.